Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, On today's episode, we're going to deal with some uh, viewer mail and uh, answer two uh, really interesting questions, one of which uh, deals with the uh, Barrow Maze uh, campaign that I'm currently running using uh, Kevin Crawford's uh, very cool Scarlet Heroes uh, game, which is a uh, kind of a heroic mode version of uh, BXD&D. And uh, we're also going to talk about uh, recruiting players uh, to play in the uh, OSR. So let's hear from the viewers and or listeners, I suppose, and then answer some questions. Hey, Kevin, this is Cody with the No Safe For You podcast. Hey, man, I just wanted to uh, call in and congratulate you on uh, on your, your upstart here. It seems you're doing a really good job. Um, getting content out and, you know, meaningful content or dense content rather. Um, I think that's super cool. I've, I've gone through and listened to all your episodes and I'm going to have to go back and listen to them again. And then probably again at home with a a scratch pad and some pencils or something and take some notes. But, um, I just wanted to, uh, call in and let you know I'm enjoying the the content and to, uh, keep it up later. Hey, Kevin, it's Cody again. Um, I wanted to comment on, uh, I guess, previous, before you switched over to Scarlet Heroes, I think it's kind of cool you're taking these new school games and hitting them with the old school sensibilities. Um, And then uh, switching over to Scarlet Heroes, it's kind of the opposite of that, right? So it's built on the Labyrinth Lord or BX chassis, and it's bringing new school elements into an old school game, which I also think is quite interesting. I'm a little more interested to hear about how your players reacted to that. I know you said they were kind of reluctant, but I guess after they got into it, how, I mean, even now, if you're still running it with Scarlet Heroes, how is that going? Um, yeah, let, let us know. Um, I'm almost out of time here, and I had a little bit more to say, so I'm going to actually call back in for a second round here, so I'll talk to you in a bit. All right, round two. Um, so I think it's... Um, like I said, it's cool you're you're mixing the old and the new in whatever order. Um, and I've been trying to get a face-to-face game here locally where I live in the Los Angeles area. And all of the um, the posters or board posts I put about playing an old-school game, I've gotten no reaction. Um, and they've been up for a couple months, and so I, I pretty much just gave up. And then I went back the other day, and I saw that all of these newer edition games, like 5th edition or Pathfinder 1st edition or 2nd edition... Um, got filled up relatively quickly. And so I was wondering um, if you had any ideas for someone who wants to maybe try and rope in some new school players into the old school, how should I advertise uh, the games to them where you think maybe they'll be interested? Um, Yeah, I guess uh, just just, uh, let us know. Thanks, man. Hey, Kevin, this is Matt Jackson. Hey, I'm really interested in your Barrow Maze uh, issues and topics and discussion. Uh, I'm kind of interested. I've never ran Scarlet Heroes, and honestly, it sounds a little not like my sort of game. Like you said, that the the heroes are a little more powerful, uh, you know, big screen heroic uh, type thing. I like him weak when I can beat him up and kill him easy. <laughs> so I'm curious what changes you've made in Barrow Maze, since Barrow Maze is, you know, designed more for a OSR Labyrinth Lord-esque game with, uh, you know, lower-powered heroes. I'm curious if you've had to make adjustments on the fly to, I hate to use the word balance, but to balance the 
uh, monsters and dangers with your heroes. All right, good stuff. I like what you're talking about. Keep it up, man. Okay, so actually in the intro, uh, I mentioned that there were two questions, and I think there's actually three questions there. One of them dealing with the player-facing part of the Barrow Maze campaign uh, run with um, Scarlet Heroes, uh, and then also one dealing with the DM-facing part of that campaign, which is how to adapt or how I'm managing the content with uh, Barrow Maze. Um, so I think what I'll do is I'll deal with those in reverse order. And then the third question is, of course, dealing with getting people into the OSR. And so I'll deal with that in a separate segment. But first, what I'd like to deal with is the question of the DM-facing stuff, because I think that's probably a shorter answer. Um, so Matt, it's a great question. Uh, and, and it's actually an, a good opportunity to, to highlight just how clever um, Kevin Crawford's game is uh, in terms of uh, making use of the existing... BX content or Labyrinth Lord or you know BX Essentials or or really Adventure Conquer King anything that, that sort of has that uh, that m- the math that drives the um, the BX games um, the clever thing with it is that while your characters are better able to weather the uh, content they it doesn't feel like they're existing at a scale that is is different from. The uh, from what other characters would be. Um, what I mean by that is, so the way that um, the Kevin Crawford in in uh, Starter Heroes uh, and in his uh, heroic mode for Revised Stars Without Number, he says that those characters, uh, those heroic mode characters, are roughly equal to about four normal characters. And one of the ways, uh, if you're unfamiliar with those games, one of the ways where it uh, it differs is, or really the two primary ways it differs from from normal characters, setting aside any of the other you know fancy feats and stuff like that that um, uh, were or foci, I guess that were included in um, the. Uh, sorry, I heard a beeping. I thought it was my my vehicle. It was not. Uh, one of the ways that it differs from um, the other games, or the two ways, I should say, one is the way your hit points uh, function and the way damage is done, and the second is the ability to dish out more than just one source of damage regularly. So the first one of those is a kind of like trick of math that uh, Kevin introduces uh, in... I'll say Mr. Crawford, because otherwise it feels like I'm talking about myself. So um, one of the ways is... is uh, that the characters or PCs, uh, they have your normal bucket of hit points, but it's a lot less than what you would get in a normal BX game. But um, when you're doing damage, you roll on a chart that sets the the damage as either uh, one, two, or four points of damage. And any NPCs, with the exception of, well, in the Scarlet Heroes, as any NPCs, they just have hit dice instead of hit points. And the amount of damage you do is scaled to hit dice. So if you're fighting a one-hit die uh, orc, uh, or say a a three-hit die knoll, then they only take three points of damage to go down, or one point of damage, uh, respectively. Um, And your players have a lot less hit points as well, too, but they're only taking one, two, or four uh, on average, you know, per per hit. And I shouldn't say that. It's, It's per, you know, attack dice because each of the attack dice is compared individually. So say you cast a fireball spell, and I think I maybe have gone into this before, but just for the sake of, um, of setting some milestones for what we're talking about, 
if you cast a fireball, that does 5d6 damage. Uh, each of those d6s will give you uh, either 0, 1, or 2 points of damage. So really, you're only scaling between 0 and 10 points of damage on it, uh, which is up to 10 hit dice of uh, creatures that you're affecting as well. Uh, which I don't think is, you know, uh, when you multiply that out uh, normally, that works out to being between uh, 6 points and um, 40, uh, 24 points. Oh, sorry, I said 5, uh, so it'd be 6 points to 30 points of damage, 3-0. So it's not a huge amount of difference. You know, a um, uh, if you're hitting a 10-hit-like creature is uh, potentially going to go down with a, um, a hit of uh, 30 points of damage. So, you know, it, the math sort of works out to what the math would be if you were rolling all those uh, dice, both hit dice and uh, damage dice, individually anyway. And it kind of speeds things up and, and keeps things moving. Um, and in addition, each creature against things that are, or each uh, character against things that are uh, their level or less in hit dice, they also potentially can do, if it makes sense for the scene, they do what's called a fray dice of damage. And a fray dice is just depending, it is um, set by your class. So fighters have a D8 uh, fray dice, which means they're able to do a little extra damage. Uh, every given round to things that are their level or less, um, and uh, down to <clears throat> a 1d4 damage for things like uh, rogues or uh, or magic users. And magic users have a special advantage with their uh, fray dice, where their fray dice can be used against anything, uh, whether it's um, you know equal to their level or greater than their level, and whether it sort of makes sense in the um, in the context of the. Scene. Like a fighter can generally only do their fray die against a melee target. Same thing with a cleric, same thing with a rogue or a, fight or a thief. Uh, whereas the magic user can do it against anybody, which I guess is to reflect their sort of, you know, lashing out with arcane power against their adversaries. Um, but the, the net effect of the table, though, is that the characters don't really, you know, they're, they're able to, to punch um, more targets but it doesn't really feel like they're punching above their weight. Now, the version that I'm running is a fairly heavily modded version, and the characters are, I think they're able to punch above their weight, but not significantly. Like, things that are substantially more powerful than them still feel like great big threats, uh, and I've had that happen in a recent session where the characters tried to take on uh, two nine-hit-die creatures, and... Because the hit dire is what's used to set the saving throw uh, that you make against these things, and that was about six levels higher than what the characters were at the time, they had a real hard time saving against their uh, the magical attacks they were using on them. So um, those particular creatures were Nagpa from uh, Basic D&D, from the creature catalog, and uh, they were, you know, kept casting whole person on them, and the guys kept getting held in place and were having to dip into the defy death mechanic in order to uh, to resist it, defy death. Basically, they take you know you trade off damage for uh, an automatic uh, successful save against things, or to just avoid death altogether. But what that did is that just sort of whittled down their their hit points. So even though they were able to resist the magical attack, they were making themselves a lot more susceptible to the actual damaging attacks of those things. So while the characters in Scarlet Heroes definitely are able to you know punch above their weight in the sense of like an individual first level character can fight more than just you know one kobold isn't going to take them down if they're taking on you know six or seven kobolds they're still going to be a real threat because 
those kobolds are they're going to be able to hit them as easily as they would in any other version of D&D. Their defenses are not are not boosted. Uh, it's just their bucket of hit points and their ability to damage more than just one target per round so long as they're fighting stuff that is equal to or less powerful than them. So in terms of the barrel maze stuff, what that really means is just that uh, the individual um, encounters, uh, the characters are often able to weather those better uh, than, um, you know, like one... Or rather, I guess, they go through less resources for each of those individual encounters. So what the net result is, is that we go through more content... Uh, you know, more rooms in the barrel maze we're able to go through, but it doesn't feel like the, you know, the encounters that are supposed to feel dangerous still feel dangerous, uh, and it it just allows us to really kind of enjoy the material uh, and the and I, I keep using the phrase content, so forgive me for being a little tedious in it, but the content, you know, we're able to get through more of the actual barrel maze uh, in a given session than we would if we were using a different version of, of the rules. We're still using, you know, uh, encumbrance rules. We're still using, uh, you know, the, the rules for not being able to use the fray dicing as more powerful things. So when they are, you know, dealing with more powerful creatures, there is sort of that added mechanical um, twist that makes it clear, like, holy shit, we're, this is a serious thing that we're dealing with here so maybe we need to be a little more careful but it allows those um you know uh it allows us to get through some of those more you know less narratively important scenes a little quicker but still allow us to have those things like we can still have our cake and eat it too in the sense that i can use random encounters i can use you know um the uh what do you call it? the i can use those, those those things that make barrow maze feel special and dangerous, you know, where, you know, wandering monsters in the maze itself are drawn when they bang down walls or when they pry open, uh, you know, the barrows or when they try and, you know, spend too much time fucking around, you know, looking for secret doors or things like that. There, there still is that threat and uh, there is that feeling of, of whittling down resources. It's just that it's a little, they've got more resources to get through. So, um, so I'm not sure. I hope that answers your, your question with respect to how that, um, how the heroic, what changes I've had to made, make in uh, Barrow Maze. I guess one other thing I, I have done is that knowing how powerful the characters are, what I'll often do is um, I might increase the number of things. You know, um, in particular, there is a, there's a encounter right at the beginning of the Barrow Maze that I don't want to spoil for any uh, listeners who might be playing in the Barrow Maze. But if you have DM the Barrow Maze or you've read Barrow Maze, you'll know which one I'm talking about. It's a great thing where there's a little call out that uh, Greg Gillespie, the author of Barrow Maze, that he, um, uh, he, where he says about what happened to one of his players in the campaign when, uh, when he ran it. And um, it's a great encounter. And what I did is I doubled the number of uh, creatures in that particular encounter to make sure that it fit the purpose for which um, I think uh, Greg had set that encounter, you know, so it was supposed to be a, there's two things that happen in it, uh, which sets the tone for the barrel maze, and I wanted to make sure that tone was set correctly, so I am making that modification, and when we do have important, um, you know, narrative uh, kind of points, or when we, not narrative points, when we hit um, parts in the barrow maze where 
those are story elements that are, you know, where you're meeting somebody or you're facing some challenge or something like that. I will probably multiply the number of uh, things encountered uh, to be the, so it, it can uh, serve a suitable uh, challenge for the players, but because of how fast, you know, BX games or, or at least OSR games run, uh, it won't add anything substantial to the time apart from, you know, setting the level of threat as appropriate to the, um, you know, to, to what the, the uh, what, what I think is intended for that particular encounter. So, um, so yeah, so anyway, it's a great question and, and uh, really got me thinking about uh, what uh, I've had to do on the DM side to adjust things. And it turns out it's not all that much. So that, I guess, then turns us to what the player experience has been like making the switch to Scarlet Heroes. All right, and that takes us to the uh, player-facing side of the um, Barrow Maze Scarlet Heroes campaign. So I guess one thing I'll say is that there's a difference between the, rea uh, the reaction of the, uh, my players to Scarlet Heroes as written and to the version of Scarlet Heroes that we are actually playing. And uh, the reason I want to make that distinction is because uh, one of the things you had mentioned, uh, Matt, in your message was, uh, or I, what I took from it is that you were concerned about not being able to beat up your characters and, and whatnot. And I think that what might, and I don't want to read too much into your, your uh, comment, but I wonder whether part of that also is the complexity of the characters, you know, having to choose a bunch of different things uh, like skills and whatever else. Uh, whether that level of complexity or other mechanical uh, options, whether that level of complexity is also something you would want to avoid. Um, a lot of uh, BX purists or <clears throat> uh, OSR purists, they don't need to have that stuff in their in their games either. Um, but the Scarlet Heroes as written does not have that level of complexity. You pick traits for your character and those are supposed to be filling the role that like, you know, special abilities from races or... Uh, in some cases from classes, uh, what those would do, you just sort of interpret those as uh, as the DM feels is appropriate. So, you know, if you think that like an orc in your world could see in the dark, then orc vision uh, as a trait would, would allow you to do that. Uh, it also fills the role that like a lot of um, skills would in uh, other role-playing games. For my players, that was not enough game. Uh, one of the comments they made while we were translating our characters over, and in fairness, we were converting char some characters over that were fairly complex. So I had one guy who was playing a ranger, one guy playing an alchemist, and one guy playing a monk. None of those exist in uh, Scarlet Heroes. So the initial reaction was a bit like, uh, how are we going to get this to fit? And the players were not uh, sold because on, on paper, or at least not resoundingly sold that this would be a better experience for them. Um, on paper, the uh, characters look like there's really not enough there. There's not um, sufficient detail, and there's not enough decision making that you're you're making in terms of uh, character creation. I think that would be satisfying for my players. However, what I did is uh, for my group, I clued together rules using the heroic mode from Star Revised Stars Without Number as a as a guide to create all those different classes. So I've got a monk in uh, my version of Scarlet Heroes. I've got a uh, an alchemist. And I've also used the uh, rules for foci that uh, were introduced in um, Revised Stars Without Number. And I, I keep saying revised because I don't uh, own 
the original version of Stars Without Numbers, so I honestly don't know if it was there too, but there's something called Foci in those games that basically is kind of fits the role of what feats do in 5th edition in the sense that it gives you abilities that uh, other characters cannot uh, perform rather than just a flat bonus the way that uh, feats did in 3rd edition D&D or in Pathfinder. Uh, so once those rules were incorporated, that satisfied my more theory crafting character or players. Uh, whereas even without those rules, because I came up with those between the first or second time we played Scarlet Heroes and then uh, the, our most recent sessions, um, even without those uh, extra rules, mechanical rules, once we played through one session with it, both the players who who made the switch, both of which were a little skeptical to start with, were resoundingly sold that this was this was the system we should use going forward. And the more we've played, the more the people have interacted with the complete rules that I've been using now, the um, the, the version of uh, the hacked version of uh, Scarlet Heroes, uh, the more they've they've really loved it uh, and. It satisfies some of the problems that I mentioned earlier that we I found we were having, which was that the combat system with Pathfinder 2nd Edition, the first game that we were running uh, with the uh, with, with the Baramaze campaign, the problem we were having was that the combats were taking too long, so that was chewing up the vast majority of our sessions. So with this, it, the combats still feel really intense and really exciting. Uh, the characters still feel like they've got some inter interesting decisions to make. Although I have noticed that I've needed to prompt them to think beyond just, you know, an attack, an attack, an attack. That they need to be thinking for improvising things because the game allows us to do that. Like there's, all, there's sort of a, um, there is a bit of sterility that comes from when you just have certain choices for your character like you do in uh, fourth edition DD like the, the complaint about that was because characters had a list of powers that you could print off as cards they would never think beyond that list they would always just do those things but there's something sometimes there's there's a bit of a a reverse where if what you're doing is you if the ability of the game is to fill in whatever narratively you want to come up with uh and you could try that but you have to come up with all those options on your own, there is a bit of an, an analysis paralysis that often results in people just saying, I attack. You know, um, the way that I run my uh, OSR games is I fill in a lot of narrative flourish to uh, fill the uh, attacks and, and damage and stuff like that because I, I like that stuff and, and I want uh, I want us to get beyond just roll to attack and, and you know, do damage. But those games, those OSR games, don't have mechanical um, things to fill in the um, the gap that is there with the if you don't fill in the narrative, uh, the fictional uh, portion of that. You know, uh, if you're making an attack in say Pathfinder Second Edition, there's different things you could do that may add modifiers or different ways you could approach the situation. Like if you're getting higher ground or whatnot, that may give you clear. Uh, benefits that you could read about in the book and you can pursue those. So you get to make, uh, there is a bit of mechanical texture to those encounters, whereas in the um, combat encounters for basic or for other versions, there isn't. It's it's really just, you know, the target number you got to hit to uh, to connect with your target. It is what it is what it is. You know, um, you can make a charge, which, you know, or... And I guess that's, that's usually the only sort of uh, extra mechanical flourish that might uh, come up, at least for martial characters. Um, and for casters, I mean, there's there's really no different there. You're looking at a list. You're not improvising anything. So uh, one of the 
uh, I'll just detail one extra little bit of, um, of uh, options for narrative flourish that I've added, is I'm allowing characters to use their traits to do both uh, combat and non-combat cantrips. So if you're playing a character who can, you know, who's a druid or an alchemist or a, a magic user or a cleric, you can use your trait to do a specific kind of attack in uh, combat. It's uh, it's not it's not the same thing as the as the fray dice. It is uh, separate from that. Uh, so it it's in addition to the usual fray mechanic, and it allows you to basically to fill in some narrative. You know, so to make your character feel magical when you're in combat without having to necessarily dip into the spells. I'm also letting them use it for concentration, duration, minor magical effects too. So again, it sort of fills the role that cantrips fill in other games um, while so they can feel magical and, and be present in the scene and present in the game doing magical stuff. Uh, without having to necessarily expend fairly limited resources. That's something that's a little more on the, again, on the kind of heroic side. It's definitely, you know, a, a low-level caster in uh, basic D&D or, or Beckney or, you know, any of the uh, OSR games, generally speaking, does not have an awful lot to do once they've gone through their, uh, their resources. And... Uh, that's something that, again, is, is for me, for my house rules, is a, is a difference... Uh, or a departure from the Scarlet Heroes as written, but uh, it allows them to, um, you know, to, uh, to I don't know, do those things that uh, they they could do in in the other version in, in uh, Pathfinder, um, but also embrace the idea of categories versus lists that seems to be present in Scarlet Heroes, and by that I mean the traits that are that you pick for your character. Uh, they, you get to you can pick them from a list that's in the book, but you can also come up with your own things. So um, my players I've seen over the last little bit have gotten a little more creative with those in particular. So um, for instance, well, we've got one character who plays a goblin monk who was a circus uh, performer before. Uh, he was a circus acrobat. So that's what we've got as one of his traits is circus acrobat. And what that trait, when that trait comes in, it's not... Um, a list, it's a category. So if there's some task that they're doing that would fit within that category, then he gets to add that bonus to it. So for instance, because he's a, he was part of a circus, he's traveled a lot. So when he encountered something that, you know, you would maybe if you've traveled or, you know, around quite a bit, or you've read quite a bit, then you might know about this. Um, I've allowed him to add that trait to that, that role. Uh, similarly, when there's tumbling or, or climbing or things like that, uh, circus acrobat would also apply because that would logically fit within that category. And the thing I like about that is it not only does it give them an opportunity to add a little more, add those mechanical bonuses more often and, uh, and hopefully succeed more often, um, it also, I think, gets them thinking about that specific character and sort of Un, in, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but they're thinking about their backstory. They're thinking about that character's whole experience and, and whatnot. And I think that that's really interesting. I mean, we all do that. That's part of the reason why we play role-playing games rather than just, you know, tabletop uh, combat games, right? Like there's plenty of board games now that you can play that, that really simulate the combat side of the um, role-playing experience. They've got codified, you know, combat roles as complex as any role-playing game, but it's that 
role-playing, investing your character with meaning, with personality, with character, with intent, that's the stuff that distinguishes the role-playing game from the uh, from the tabletop game, or just tabletop board games, or, or fantasy tabletop combat games, like um, uh, Descent, or, or things like that. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, so that's, that's um, one of the things that the characters, or the players, I should say, have mentioned as them really enjoying. Like, they, I, I can see them more easily transitioning between role-playing scenes and combat scenes and action scenes and, you know, downtime scenes and and whatnot. It's a more seamless transition because one doesn't take up so much more time than the other. So for the players who um, started in the Pathfinder game going through... Cody, this is answering uh, your question, hopefully. Going through into the, uh, the Scarlet Heroes campaign... They seem to be really happy because it's achieving more of what they, what we want out of the game, which is to say, having a well-rounded experience. You know, having a great role-playing experience, which, you know, uh, allows us to explore these characters, but also have great and fun combat. You know, with scary monsters in dangerous situations, but also role-play and interact with a really interesting environment that is uh, outside of the dungeon um, presented in uh, Barrow Maze. So. Um, Anything more, I think you'd have to, I'd have to address that to my players. And maybe what I'll, I'll do that in future, and I'll report back as to what their comments are, because we've been about, jeez, uh, coming up on about four or five months of the, of, into the campaign at time of recording. But one thing I will say, you know, about it is I had mentioned about my plans for 2019, um, one of which is to keep exploring this version of D&D that I've, I've cobbled together using different cine nominee games and some of my own ideas and stuff I've stolen from Pathfinder and whatnot. And um, see if we can't, what I, I suggest is, you know, we keep bashing at this and see if we can get to the version of D&D that we all really love and come up with a cohesive kind of, you know, our own hacked version of the game. And everybody was on board for that. And I, I think that if they were not enjoying the transition to this version of D&D that we're playing now, I think they would not have been as keen to do that. It would have been a, well, we've got these other games to play, Kevin. You're really easily distracted, so <laughs> let's let's talk about one of the other games we can get you playing. So so anyway, um, Cody, I hope that answers uh, your question with respect to the player-facing side of the Barrow Maze campaign. So that brings us to uh, Cody's question about getting people into the OSR. And I think this is, hmm, this is a, uh, a tough nut to crack. And I'm, I'm, I don't have any direct, um, experience from which to draw on this, uh, in terms of getting together a, a, a group in person. Um, I very rarely, uh, play a tabletop game in person only because the, it's much more convenient for my schedule and for the, you know, where my regular, players are located uh, to just play online rather than uh, to get a tabletop game together. And when I do have uh, in-person games together, I'm well, invariably the one who is running it. And the, um, the my players are always happy to play whatever the hell I want to, you know, uh, whatever I kind of hype, hype up and, and decide to run, uh, whether that's an OSR game or that's a new story game or, or whatever. And, uh, so I, I don't know about finding, I don't even know how, like what uh, online resources are, are accessible, but I mean, LA is a big area and you certainly have, you know, um, 
other people who are Sorry, my dog was crying to get attention. <laughs> um, you certainly have a big enough area from which to draw uh, uh, players. And I know that one of the charity sessions I ran recently for the uh, Heroes Save Villages charity campaign I'm running on my channel, it was actually someone from L.A. It was, And his whole group was from L.A. as well, too. So there are people out there who are playing role-playing games for sure. But in terms of the OSR, so I think... Uh, and this is not, I think, a, um, a surprise, but... Fifth edition is the, as you mentioned in your in your um, in your comment, five e and uh, to a lesser degree Pathfinder are the two big you know games that everyone's out there playing. And part of the reason is because of the um, organized play campaigns that both of them have. It's very easy to get into. Plus, but people who are new to role playing. Um, you know, I, this the current environment that we're in right now, where there's so many more people. Uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons than really at any other point in the game's history. And then I'm, that's building on um, Hasbro last year saying that they had the best year of D&D sales ever uh, with uh, 2016. I'm sorry, 2017. Uh, it makes me think there's just a, a shit ton of people who are new to this hobby, but also in particular new to D&D, who kind of think that that's what the game is about. I've talked to my friend uh, at my friendly local gaming store about this too, and he said the same thing. Like D&D, just 5th edition blows everything else out of the water. There are still people playing uh, Pathfinder, but that's the, you know, that's the game everyone, um, it, people who are new to the hobby are, are often, I mean, by often, I mean more often than anything else. That's the thing that their first experience is with. Uh, even the online streaming uh, stuff is is almost, I mean... There's a good selection of other types of games, more indie games and stuff like that. Like my channel, I very rarely uh, run uh, 5e, but my channel does not have the viewership that, you know, big streaming channels do, which play 5th edition. Um, Critical Role is a 5th edition game. And uh, yeah, I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is that that's probably going to be what most people are thinking of as their first role-playing game. And it is tough to get people to switch from what they know. Even with new gamers, every gamer gets involved with the game for different reasons anyway. They, have, they get different things out of the experience. Some people like building characters. Some people like playing with their friends. Some people like investing in a story. You know, some, all those lists that they always have in, in the DMGs and stuff like that of the different types of players and, and other role-playing games offer these similar lists. Well, even those new players, even though that's their first game, they've got all those different categories of gamers. But in addition to that, this is their first game. And 5th Edition is a pretty good game, too. Like, it's as far as games go, it's a pretty solid game. It doesn't have a lot of, or at least not as many of the warts and stuff like that, that uh, some um, versions of D&D did um, in, in a sense of, like, there's things that we have come to embrace and love about certain games. But, you know, imagine if... Uh, AD&D first was your your first game. Uh, there are going to be people out there who religiously love the that game as when they ran it as written, but that's the vast minority. I mean, I think most people ended up home ruling or house ruling that game uh, to a, a certain extent. Um, you know, wh whether that's ignoring the attack versus armor class bonuses or you know ignoring the speed factor rules or or whatever. Um, but uh, but what it is, is that's their first game too. So if, the, if there's so many new players out who are all participating in that, that's adding to sort of the, the, the idea being that everyone's 
going to, you know, the lowest common denominator is D&D 5th. Uh, all those new players are involved with it, not only because it's the, you know, it's the game that, uh, it's a good game and, and that that's the one they're playing. That's their first game. Um, it's also the one that's easiest to, to join and easiest to, uh, to uh, get involved with if you don't know people outside of gaming stores, right? If you if you don't know anybody else who amongst your friends who are involved with that, that's a game you can engage. And Pathfinder is the same way to a lesser degree. The reason I mention that is I'm not, I, obviously I'm not telling you anything you didn't know already, but the reason I mention that is perhaps to um, use that, knowing that that's what maybe part of the barrier is, is to, um, to use that to try and find um, other players. You know, um, one of the things that I have found uh, in my in the last few years of gaming, um, in, in about the I don't know, not ten years, but about the last seven or eight years, uh, I have been running regular sessions on specific dates. So, and that's been changing depending on the groups that we've been playing. But the guarantee I've had for my players is, you show up on this date, we're playing. I don't know what we're playing necessarily or what's happening in the session, but as long as you show up that date, that's happening. And a game can't happen without a DM. So if you set a, you know, put your tent pole down, combining those two ideas, put your tent pole down as being like, this is the OSR table. And you don't even necessarily need to call it the OSR table, saying you can call it whatever game you're running. Um, and I always sell OSR games to people who haven't played um, them as saying, you play D&D, you understand. You know, whether the player is coming from uh, 4th edition background, 3rd edition background, Pathfinder, 5th edition, whatever else. They're, they know 80% of whatever's happening in the game. And then it's really selling them on the things that make it the version you're trying to run fun and different. Um, my first effort to sell my players who were used to uh, 4th edition D&D, 5th edition D&D, and also had extensive experience with 3rd uh, and 3.5 and Pathfinder, uh, was uh, Adventure Conqueror King. And obviously that is a very different animal than what um, D&D, what those other versions of D&D are. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that one, it's very much, you know, if you've played basic D&D or BX, then you've got a sense of what, what that game's about. Uh, fighters have D8 hit points, not uh, D10. Um, magic users, you know, memorize their spells ahead of time and, and so forth. Uh, so one of the things I'd, I identified as a potential barrier for them playing that game is how lethal the game is. So I made characters at fifth level. Uh, that way they had a bigger bucket of hit points and more things to do. A first level, uh, fifth edition character feels, you know, it feels pretty comprehensive. They're, 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 they're not as powerful or as experienced or have as many diverse options available to them that their higher level equivalents do. But you compare a first level fifth edition character made with the full like, you know, background and feats and whatever else, that's going to be a much more complex character and seemingly have more options to it than a first level BX or other version OSR type character in most cases. Um, so if you feel that the players will feel, well, I can't do anything. These characters are boring. They're not really heroes. Then just get around that by running it at fifth level. Um, this is, get, assuming you can get them to the table. Uh, secondly, um, make sure they're, you're highlighting some of the things that make OSR play really different and more, I think, more um, engaging than uh, the default style of play from like Pathfinder or D&D, uh, &D, which is to say you're playing through a module. Sandbox play in particular 
is so much easier with these OSR games uh, than it is with uh, 5e in the sense of setting up incentive structures. Because your incentive structure in OSR games is to get loot over just killing shit, then that makes players, if they're really interested in advancing, that puts the onus on that. Uh, and it also makes them realize they don't need to fight every single thing they encounter. So the sandbox elements of that, assuming that that's the, um, the stuff you want to try and play up, you know, showing them the fun of managing resources like their food, their water, as they're out exploring different areas, um, showing how uh, initiative is different, showing how spells are much more powerful and more um, significant in OSR games, I feel, than they are in... I mean, a less generous way of describing it would be uh, unbalanced. Um, but uh, they're certainly more powerful, uh, I think, in uh, basic and those versions, BX versions and OSR games uh, than they are in others. They're also substantially more fragile. You know, uh, spell interruption is so much more of a significant thing in um, a lot of these OSR games than it is in 5e, in Pathfinder, and a lot more frequent. Uh, in particular, um, if you're using, oh, I guess that's the other thing too, is rolling initiative each round. It's, it's, so, it's so exciting. You know, every round becomes this, oh my God, I hope I get to go again, you know, kind of thing. So I think that's one other thing to bear in mind is whatever OSR game you're, you're hoping to run, try and, you know, highlight the things that, uh, that really make it a unique experience over those other kinds, even like getting through a bunch of combat, like the, the real surprise for a lot of my players was, holy shit, like we can get through interesting and fun combat, but we can have like six encounters in two hours and still have plenty of time to role play. That was a big thing for my players. And the other thing is, is make sure you're, you're sort of smoothing out the weak spots. So for instance, if you've got players who you know will want, um, you know, will want to have, be able to make some decisions in your characters, in, in their character design, and they're not going to be satisfied with running a just a character with, uh, you know, a class, and that's it. Like, say, a first-level fighter per, you know, BX rules. Um, if they need more than that, you don't need to go as far as implementing, like, Pathfinder skills or, you know, the 5th edition skills. Um, take a look at, uh, what do you call it, the um, proficiencies from um, uh, Adventure Conquer King. Uh, they're a great set of rules for giving that middle ground of allowing you to make interesting decisions on characters without really overcomplicating things. It's actually, I, I was, if I didn't steal the idea for Foci for my Scarlet Heroes game, that's probably the next thing I would go to. So that gives another way. Or you could steal the idea of traits from Scarlet Heroes, right? And, and uh, that just gives the characters something to look at on the character sheet that tells them this is different from another character, you know? Um, and for characters coming from a mechanical background like 5th edition, like Pathfinder, that's going to help smooth that over. You don't need to stick with that necessarily when, if you decide to run it, but that at least gives them the opportunity to not have those, you know, not be focused on what they don't have and uh, instead appreciate the things they do have in an OSR game. You know, this is a bit of a uh, non sequitur here, but you know, one of the things that people often go through when they change jobs is they go through a period of um, the reverse honeymoon where all they can do is compare their new job, the things that are shitty about their new job to the things that were great about their old job. 
But as time goes on, they come to realize, oh, well, you know, there's a reason I left that old job is because of those shitty things and those aren't present in the new job. And there are things that are uh, of benefit in this new job that weren't there with the, pre the previous job, you know, and then you kind of smooth into a, a appreciating that job for what it is. Uh, and I think that the similar thing can happen with the transition from one, uh, from an, uh, from someone who's got a background more from like 5e or Pathfinder, you, to smooth over that, um, you know, that, that transition to allow them to see the really cool things that, you know, we all love about OSR games without being hampered by focusing only on the things they can't do wow, my thief at first level can't do shit. They can maybe climb a wall, but they can't hide. They can't sneak. They can't do anything else. Well, if you give them something else mechanically to look at, like a trait or something like that, uh, something else to dig into, then, um, then maybe that will smooth things over. Or if they're starting at a higher level, they're not going to focus so much on that. You know, one of the fun things about the OSR games too is that... Uh, it remains a challenge. Like those games remain challenging regardless of whatever level you are. I mean, spellcasters at a certain point do get pretty powerful, but since most of these OSR games cap out at around 12th level anyway, or 12th to 14th level, uh, depending on the game, then uh, you're never really getting into those ridiculous, you know, 20th level spells that people always use as straw men to say like, oh, this is why spellcasters stop being, you know, they become so much more powerful and so much more prominent. If you keep people uh, restricted to at most third or maybe even fourth level spells, they're not going to be, you know, so superhuman that they're ruining the campaign for everybody else. In particular, if you stick with the hit points and the spell interruption, you can allow everyone to really see how this game plays differently and feels differently at the table and moves so much quicker and has such a different way of playing, like with that sandbox emergent play, than what you get from a traditional D&D &D, uh, mode. Um, you can also feel free. I mean, one of the nice things you could do too is uh, steal whatever things that uh, you feel might help make the transition easier for, for uh, those players. You know, um, steal inspiration. Uh, let them, let them do that. Give them feet points or action points or whatever the hell you want to call it to, uh, to allow them to get beyond a, uh, a death save. You know, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I'm using Scarlet Heroes is because I love that I can run all of my BX stuff as written and make a scorpion man's venom or a wyvern's venom kill you outright if you fail the save. And they're only saved by grace of their special ability, which is the defy death mechanic. You know, you could replace that with anything else. In in a recent uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea uh, game, I uh, characterized that as astonishing deeds. I gave them benefits for role-playing their characters, uh, and then they would get these points, and they could spend them to, uh, you know, to make someone miss them or to get an automatic hit or or whatever. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so anyway... Um, in terms, though, of getting just people to the table, that's, I think, a problem we all have. One thing I would consider as well is um, if you're willing to go beyond uh, tabletop, I mean, if you can find people who want to play in person, that's awesome. There is obviously always a certain chemistry and energy, if I can be flaky for a moment, that happens at the table. There's, there's a certain uh, chemistry that happens there when you're all in the same room and you're all playing together. The, the reality is, so it's, it's really tough for people to commit to that, uh, in particular, the older you get. Whereas if you just set dates online and say, hey, I want to run this on this date, um, 
you know, and, uh, and keep pumping it and keep finding it. You're going to find people who will show up. And the more people who start to show up, the, the bigger your group's going to get. So, um, you know, uh, I know you're active on, uh, MeWe and, and, uh, G plus as well. So th those are great resources at, at the time of recording, at least G plus is still around. Um, so that might give you at the very least a, uh, less optimal version, which is to at least play online. Roll 20 is a, a pretty great resource for running most OSR games, even though, uh, some of the character sheets are not, uh, fully fleshed out, you know, and are not as good as they could be. There's certainly enough there, and the benefit of running an OSR game is there's not an inordinate amount of complexity that you need to have in order to run that game properly. That can't just be done with, you know, a dice roller or rolling physical dice instead. So anyway, Cody, um, I will give it some more thought over time as well um, and, uh, and share any more ideas I have. But if anybody else has any ideas for how to, you know, how to make the OSR sell better, uh, for for just getting a group together, um, give me a call and uh, I or leave a message. I should say with uh, the podcast or flip me an email at dungeonmusings at gmail dot com or uh, shoot me a, a tweet on Twitter at dungeonmusings uh, and uh, and I'll share that on the um, on a latter uh, or later uh, episode. So anyway, but thanks for the question, Cody. That's that was good uh, food for thought and good uh, way of thinking about you know how to pitch these really awesome games to people who may be reluctant to play them. Alrighty. So I think that's all for, uh, this episode. That was once again, a, a pretty long one. Um, but, uh, thanks again to uh, Matt and Cody for those great questions that, that really gave me a lot to think about this week and, uh, a lot of material to talk about. So, uh, thanks guys. I really appreciate the, uh, the calls in. So uh, if I have not addressed your questions or you have uh, follow-up questions, please don't hesitate to shoot me a message and I will endeavor to uh, either answer them a little better or expand on um, whatever I didn't say enough about. Otherwise, uh, thanks folks for uh, yet another episode. I hope you have enjoyed and happy gaming to y'all. <laughs>